are you guys? Good, good. If you're new or visiting TCC, my name's Justin. I am one of the pastors here, and I'd love to meet you before you take off or at some point just grab coffee with you if you're willing to do that. Uh, really quick, before we pray and dive into the scriptures, Jamie, I just want to say thank you for sharing. We are so excited to have you here at TCC for this uh, short period of time. And uh, what she's doing, the work that she's doing and the work that she's studying is so in line with who we've always wanted to be as a people here at TCC and practice this value of biblical hospitality. And so I'm excited to see what the Lord does through Jamie here and our church family. Uh, let me pray for us and then we'll dive into the scriptures. Heavenly Father, thank you for this moment. Thank you for another opportunity to gather with other followers of your son Jesus as we sing and study your word and take communion. God, we partake in these sacred acts as believers have been doing for thousands of years, not out of religious duty or begrudging obedience, but God, we do these things because we actually believe the gospel and our lives have been changed as a result. God, as we look at your scriptures this morning, we ask for your Holy Spirit to open our minds and our hearts to your voice. And may we continue to be changed by the truth in this book. And may the gospel of Jesus, the life-changing, soul-restoring good news of Christ, be exalted in every single passage. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we begin, let me show you a picture of a man who has had a profound influence on my life. This man in the middle is my grandpa, that's me on the far right, my cousin Angela beside me, my sister Julie, and my cousin Ricky. This is my mom's dad, and growing up, the four grandkids, we always called him Big Papa. He was a huge, notorious B.I.G. fan. Um, no, he wasn't. Uh, our other grandpa was a very small man, so he got the moniker uh, Big Papa. Now, Papa passed away several years ago, but I have very fond memories of him. One of my uh, favorite memories of him is the way he would always sing to us. He's just always singing. Oftentimes, it was like old country or old rocks. So he's a big Elvis fan, sang a lot of Conway Twitty, but he also just made up songs. Like As he went throughout his day, he would just sing random songs. When we were kids, when he would tuck us in at night, if we were staying the night at their house, he would always sing a song over us called Glow Little Glowworm. Maybe you think you know the song. I promise you do not know his version of the song, okay? So let me read you Big Papa's version of Glow Little Glowworm. It went like this as he would tuck us in at night. Glow little glowworm, glimmer, glimmer. Make my girlfriend slimmer, slimmer. <laughs> Teeth knocked out and her hair's proxided. You can tell by the moonlight that she's cross-eyed. Holes in her underwear flapping in the breeze. Listen to the murmur of the knocking of her knees. One peg leg and she can't get home, but I love her just the same. And then he would, then he would tuck us in and say, good night, kids. <laughs> to this day, I have no idea why my grandfather chose to sing this over his grandkids. <laughs> it is amazing that all four of us turned out to be somewhat normal uh, adults. <clears throat> Growing up, my Mimi and Papa, they lived on a river and they had this huge dock uh, that went out to the river. And, and it was very common for me to go out on the dock with Papa and fish for hours and hours on end, and he would sit on the end of the dock and tell me stories, and he would call over to his neighbor, Roger, who lived in the next house over and would always be on his dock fishing, and I would listen to them tell old man stories. My grandpa, he always wore a wife beater. I don't know what the politically correct term for that is. You know what I mean? The tank top, the undershirt tank top? Okay. I, could, I thought about it all week, and I couldn't figure out a better way of saying that. <clears throat> when I was hungry or thirsty, he would always give me a glass bottle of Coke and a can of Vienna sausages. Do you guys know what that is? It's like canned meat. It's nasty canned meat. He would give me a can of Vienna sausages and a sleeve of saltine crackers, just plain saltine crackers. My grandpa, he was always smoking a cigarette and he was always drinking old Milwaukee beer. 
just cheap, nasty beer. So a lot of people, they don't, they don't like the smell of cigarette smoke. Like my wife, she just does not like the smell of cigarette smoke. Some people don't like the taste or the smell of cheap beer. But for me, cigarette smoke and cheap beer reminds me of my childhood, oddly enough. So it's just something I'm very fond of. Uh, I have fond memories of him. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and chapter 8 today. Here's why I bring all this up about my grandfather. As I prepare each sermon every week, I always read a bunch of commentaries and listen to a bunch of sermons and try to basically just learn as much as I can about any given passage. And everyone that I listened to and everyone that I read this week agreed that in chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes, we're getting kind of a different Solomon at this point. He's, he spent the last six chapters basically lamenting the world. He looks out at, at everything he's accomplished at everything he's done, and he says it's hevel, it's meaningless. But then in chapter 7, most commentators agree that it's kind of like we're getting this old man now looking back over his long life and telling us some wisdom. Matt Chandler, a pastor down in Texas, likened it to sitting down with a grandpa he never had. He said it like this. He said, Solomon is like the grandpa I never had. In chapter 7, it's like he invites us over and he just hands us black coffee and goes, sit down, I want to share some things with you. So I want to I use that framework for our sermon today. And I want us to imagine that we're sitting down with our grandpa, or perhaps with my grandpa. My grandpa, he never gave me black coffee like Matt Chandler talks about, but he did give me cans of Vienna sausages and saltine crackers and a bottle of Coke. So imagine we're sitting out on the dock and Grandpa Solomon, he says, I need to tell you some things. I need to tell you some things. So we're going to look at several different passages in chapter 7 and chapter 8, and the approach this morning is going to be a little bit different than we would normally approach the text. Normally, I would explain the full passage, teach the passage, and then we would have the so what moment where we would talk about the application, how do we apply the text, and then I would talk about Jesus. But today, it's going to be a little bit different. It's going to be more scattered because Grandpa Solomon is more scattered in his thought. So we're actually going to read a verse or two, explain that verse or two, and then apply the passage, and then we'll read another passage explain it, apply it. Does that make sense? Okay. So that'll be the the flow for the day. Here we go. Chapter seven, verse one. Here comes the first wise saying from Grandpa Solomon. He says, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death better than the day of birth. In another place, Proverbs 22, verse one, Solomon says it like this. A good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. Now, this gets kind of lost on us in the English translation, but Solomon is being a bit of a wordsmith here because in the Hebrew language, the word name and the word ointment, or some of your translations may say perfume, they are only two letters apart in the Hebrew. So it's a little bit of a play on words, but don't miss Solomon's point here. Here's what Grandpa Solomon just said. Your reputation matters. Your reputation, your name, having a good name is better than owning a bunch of expensive things. In other words, sure, there are some nice things out there, and you can buy uh, all the newest gadgets. You can buy a nicer car. You can buy a bigger home. You can buy a vacation home. You can drown your sorrows with online shopping. You can be on a first-name basis with the Amazon Prime delivery guy. But at the end of the day, Solomon says, who cares? Who cares if you have riches and stuff if when your name is mentioned, everyone rolls their eyes and laughs at you? Who cares if you are successful in life, but your reputation, the reputation that precedes you is not a good one? Who cares, Solomon says. Your character, your reputation, it matters. Think about it like this. 
The fascinating thing, when you look at men and women who are in that next season of life ahead of you, you never admire the stuff they own, right? We never look at them and think, man, if I, if I owned what they own, I'd be happy. We look at them and we think, man, I want to be like them because of their character, because of who they actually are. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. As a pastor, two of the things that I really admire about pastors who are ahead of me in life are their faithfulness and their humility. So when I look at other pastors, I don't give a rip how many books they've written. I don't care how many conferences they've been invited to speak at. I don't even care how big their church is. But when I see a man who has faithfully and humbly served the same people for 40 years, I go, that's the kind of pastor I want to be. I want to be like him. Or as a dad, for example, I have a seven-year-old and a three-year-old daughter, both daughters. I've never looked at a dad who's in the next season of life in front of me. I've never looked at a dad who has 20-year-old daughters and thought, man, when I'm his age, I hope I have a truck like that. Never. But I have looked at men who have teenage daughters or 20-something-year-old daughters and thought, gosh, I hope when I'm his age, my daughters love me the way his daughters love him. Just last week, I was uh, standing in the back as we wrapped up singing. Austin finished singing and then uh, started to pray. And, and every uh, week when Austin starts to pray, I usually stand in the back and I don't close my eyes. I just kind of watch the room and I try to get my heart right for the, the moment that I'm about to walk into. And I'm standing in the back and, and in the back row right there, standing right in front of me, was the Macy family. Some of you may know them. And so you have Nick and Danelle Macy standing there, and beside Nick is their 20-something-year-old daughter, Maddie. And standing next to Maddie is her husband. As Austin starts to pray, Maddie leans over to her dad, not her husband, leans over to her dad and wraps her arms around him, and he wraps his arms around her, and I started to cry. Because <laughs> I thought, I want to be like Nick Macy. I, I want my daughters to do that when they're in their 20s. Solomon, he says, what do you hope your reputation is like? What do you want to be known for? When people hear your name, what do they think? And then he just stares off into the distance and he takes another sip of old Milwaukee and he waits for a fish to bite. And we're left sitting there just pondering this wisdom. We eat another salting cracker. We look at the Vienna sausages. <laughs> praying to God he doesn't make us eat another one. And then he says this in verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. Now, that is a little bit of a word salad from Solomon, so let me try to summarize what he's saying here. Solomon just said to us in all of his old man wisdom, he says, it is better to go to a funeral than to go to a birthday party. It is better to go to a funeral. It's better to enter into sorrow and grief than it is to enter into laughter. But what in the world is he getting at? Is he saying that death is better than birth? No. No, he's not saying that death is better than birth. I think what Solomon is saying is that death has a way of forcing us to confront the deeper things of life in a way that nothing else can. When we are confronted with death, it forces us to think about our own life. Think about it like this. Um, all of us have attended a lot of birthday parties. I'm a, a dad of young girls. I've attended a lot of kids' birthday parties. I've seen a lot of pinatas smashed. I've been to Chuck E. Cheese more times than I care. I've seen a lot of one-year-olds smash their face into a birthday cake. And I've never had an existential crisis at any of those birthday parties. Not once. 
But at every funeral I've ever attended, there has been a moment of reflection, a moment where I look and have to come to grips with the reality that I could be next, that my life will soon end and God has given me a certain number of days and I don't know how many days I have left and I need to steward them well. David Gibson in his commentary on this passage says it like this. He said, when life ends or is about to end, absolutely everything else comes into focus. The things that don't really matter, but which we gave so much time to now seem so empty and pointless. The lives we touched, the generosity we showed, and the love we gave or received now mean so much more. That's what the preacher is saying. A coffin preaches better sermons. Look forward, he says, as he grabs us by the shoulders. Don't be a fool. Stop trying to escape life's agonies by drowning them away, by laughing them off and pretending they don't exist. Look forward to your day of death and ask yourself, what kind of person do I want to be? I think this is what the the psalmist is getting at in Psalm chapter 90, verse 12, when he says this, teach us to number our days so that we might get a heart of wisdom. Now, I know this may sound strange, but here's the application of this passage. Dwell on your mortality often. Dwell on your mortality often. Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan preacher, wrote this in his resolutions, which he would recite to himself every morning. He said this, resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying and of the common circumstance which attend death. He reflected on his death often. Now you might say, well, Justin, that's depressing. That sounds really morbid to do. Why would someone want to live that way? Because when we live that way, we understand our fleeting role in this grand narrative called life. When you reflect on your death often, you will take yourself less serious. When you reflect on your death often, you will focus today on the things that actually matter. That's what Solomon's saying. So we're just sitting there on the dock, staring across the river, borderline depressed, thinking about our death. And then you hear Solomon, grandpa, speaking up. It kind of startles you. He says, I thought of something else. Look at verse five. He says, another thing. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. It's hevel. It's meaningless. Solomon says, everyone loves to be praised, but do you know what's better than being praised? To be rebuked by someone that loves you enough to call you out on your sin and your selfishness. This line of thinking, it was very common for Solomon. In Proverbs, he actually speaks to it several times. Let me show you one example. In Proverbs chapter 15, verse 31 and 32, he says this, The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. It is wise for us, Solomon says, to surround ourselves with people who know us well enough and love us enough to call us out on our sin. I have several of these people in my life. My wife is one of them. She is not afraid to call me out on my sin, and I appreciate that about her. The elders of our church, these group of men that I joyfully submit to and invite into my life to call me out in any way they see fit. There's another man in my life who you've heard me mention many times if you've been around our church for a while. His name's Monty. I have lunch with Monty every month. And he's in that next season of life ahead of me. He's the wisest man I know. And he calls me out. Almost every time we get together, I feel like he challenges me and confronts me. One time we were having lunch and 
uh, it had been a little bit of a rough week. Uh, Katie and I had gotten into an argument the, the day before, and that's pretty rare for Katie and I to get into an argument that stretches beyond kind of the one moment, but it had, it had lasted. And so I'm telling my friend Monty, and I'm just looking for him to understand or agree with me that I'm right. You know, so I'm telling him the story in such a way to prove the point that I was right and Katie was wrong. So I finished telling the story, and I'm expecting him to lean in and go, yeah, you told her. Good for you. And he leans in. And he goes, Justin, you're an idiot. <laughs> and, and I've been through this cycle enough with Monty. I go, Monty, I am sure you're right. Tell me why. And he goes, you care more about winning an argument than you care about your wife feeling loved by you. And then he just let it sit for a moment, and he goes, is that really the type of man you want to be? I was like, dang it, Monty, ruining lunch again. <clears throat> it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than the song of fools, Solomon says. But I need to be clear about something here. Surrounding yourself with people who love you enough to call you out is only half the battle, okay? You also, this is really important, you also have to be willing to listen to them when they call you out. It does no good to surround yourself with people who are going to call you out if you aren't willing to listen to them when they do. I think that's what Solomon is getting at in verse six when he says, the laughter of fools is like the crackling of thorns burning under a pot. Grandpa Solomon, he takes another sip of his drink and he goes, wise people, when they are confronted with their sin, they scream, help, I am on fire. But a fool laughs. A fool laughs in the face of wisdom. One of the saddest things I've ever seen in my 36 years of life was this verse playing out in real time. There was a moment in my life where I watched a man that I loved and, and cared for deeply, surrounded by people who loved him and wanted what was best for him, and everyone was saying the same thing. Everyone was saying, dude, you are on fire. You're on fire. And he shrugged it off and didn't listen to the people who loved him. And it was incredibly, incredibly sad. Solomon is warning us. He's saying, don't try to laugh it off. Allow yourself to be confronted and take it to heart because that's what wise people do. So again, we're just sitting on the end of the dock, pondering this wisdom that seems disconnected from the last thing he said. And, and then grandpa's like, are you gonna eat those sausages? And you're like, no. He's like, boy, don't waste that food. I've been through this a lot with, uh, with my grandpa. And then he jumps back in, look at verse 10. There's another thing he says, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. And I love the way the NLT says it. It says this, don't long for the good old days. This is not wise. Solomon here, he's, he's talking to Jewish people and the Jews were guilty of this, weren't they? My favorite example is in Numbers chapter 11 and verse four through six, if you wanna read it sometime, the Jewish people now living in freedom start grumbling and they start hearkening back to the good old days of slavery. They start looking back at Egypt and they go, do you remember Egypt? You remember, yeah, sure, we were forced to do slave labor, but do you remember how good the food was? And those were the good old days. If we could just get back to that. And Solomon looks at him and he goes, it's not wise. Don't do that. Now, the comical example of this, of someone hearkening back to the good old days is like the guy in his mid-30s or mid-40s hearkening back to his days of football or baseball. Um, Adam says this is like the guy who just can't seem to close the yearbook after he graduates high school. It's like Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite. You guys know that uh, classic scene? I could throw a pigskin a quarter mile. Those are like the funny examples, but let me be really honest. This is the way I've seen this passage play out in our church over the last year. 
in regards to COVID. So here's what I'll hear people say, and I'm guilty of it too. We'll, we'll talk about COVID and we'll go, man, I can't wait for things to get back to normal. Do you remember 2019, how good that was? We didn't have to wear masks, we didn't have to distance, we didn't have to RSVP to show up to church. Remember the, the good old days? And we hearken back to it like it was amazing. And, and then we look forward to when COVID is over as if somehow life is just going to be warm and fuzzy all the time. Like somehow not wearing a mask to go to Costco is going to get rid of all your sin and selfishness. Like all your relational dysfunction will be gone because COVID is gone. No, you'll still be you. You'll still be sinful. Our relationships will still be damaged. We forget that 2019 was kind of hard because we were there. And it's going to be hard when COVID is over. Solomon looks at us and he goes, this foolish. Stop hearkening back to the good old days and start living in the moment now. Now, Grandpa Solomon, he just keeps going like this all the way through chapter eight. Just these pithy and provocative statements. We don't have time to cover them all, so I won't even try, but I want to show you one more. Look at chapter eight, verse 14. Chapter eight, verse 14, Solomon says this. There's something else. There's another thing I thought of. Something else meaningless that occurs on the earth. Grandpa Solomon says, there's another thing that really chaps me and I need to get it off my chest. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless, hevel, vanity. In other words, and we've all seen this, there are people who are faithful and loyal and kind who love the Lord and they die young and there are creepy old men who will live to a hundred. And Solomon looks at that disparity and he goes, it's not right. It's not right. So therefore, he goes on. Verse 15, he's gonna give us advice based on that reality. So I commend you the enjoyment of life because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. And then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life God has given them under the sun. This verse, verse 15, is one of four passages in Ecclesiastes called the Carpe Diem, or the Seize the Day passages. We saw one of them in chapter three, one of them in chapter five, one here, and then next week we'll talk at length about one in chapter nine. But here's what Grandpa Solomon is saying. The wise, when they are confronted with the meaninglessness of life, they recognize that God has given us the present moment, that that is all we have, and so we need to enjoy the present moment and thank God for it. What Solomon is saying here is really important because it's something that we all struggle with. All of us struggle living in the present moment. We always either look back at the past with regret or wish we could change something or we hearken back to the good old days or we look forward to the future, but rarely are we in the present. French author Hilaire Belloc says it like this, while you're dreaming of the future or regretting the past, the present, which is all you have, slips from you and it's gone. The French philosopher Blaise Pascal describes it like this. We seem never to be able to be happy with the present. Either we yearn for the future and wish it would hurry up and get here, or we mourn the past and wish it had not flown by so quickly. We scarcely ever think about the present for it is mostly painful to us. We conceal it from our sight because it troubles us. And if it happens to be pleasing to us, we only focus on the pain of it slipping away. Most of the time, we only think of the present to plan for our future. The present is never our end. The present is our means. The future alone is our end. Listen to this. So we never live. We only hope to live someday. 
Because we are always preparing to be happy, we never are so. It reminds me of a great line from The Office. Andy Bernard says, I wish there was a way to know you're in the good old days before you've actually left them. But it is so difficult. It is so difficult because any time we begin to be present in the moment, something around us will distract us and we'll be gone. We'll be in the present moment. We will be enjoying time with our children. We'll be enjoying time with our spouse. We'll be enjoying time with someone in our community. And then your phone buzzes and you're taken out of the moment. Several years ago, I attended a conference, and at this conference, there was a hip-hop artist named Propaganda. It's his uh, hip-hop name. Jason Petty is his real name. And he did this uh, poem, this spoken word piece, and all these years later, I think about this poem all the time. I actually read this poem uh, to us last year when we went through the Bible in the year. We did one sermon on Ecclesiastes, and in that sermon, I read this poem. But it's so good and it's so timely for this passage that I want to read it to you again. So fair warning, it's a bit long, but it is totally worth it. So we'll put all the words on the screen. He said this, So I tend to think of life in terms of movie clips or tweetable moments. Somehow I've convinced myself they last longer that way. And my wife proved me wrong when she referred to my phone as my black wife. Now I thought it was funny. I mean, we both giggled. Now single men take note. I'm no expert, but I don't think she was kidding. She talked about some other stuff, which I really don't remember. I was too busy in my head composing a tweet where I would quote her with some sort of clever hashtag about marriage and about how much I love her to be paying attention to her at that moment. I think what snapped me back in was the silence, which indicated I was supposed to have some sort of response to whatever she was talking about. I told my father that story in hopes to get a little sympathy. My father, civil rights and Vietnam war vet, hopelessly charming on his fourth marriage, father. And rather than the customary nod that men give each other when they understand, he proceeded to tell me why he failed as my mother's husband. He said it was the same reason half of his platoon died in Vietnam, and the same reason you were deathly afraid of your daughter becoming a teenager. Son, you can't hear past the explosions, either the ones that already happened or the ones you anticipate. You see the former paralyzes, living life in a rearview mirror, driving full speed across traffic into the center divider. So shell-shocked, you are too stupid to duck when bullets are flying. Or the latter, your life is a game of capture the flag. So focused on the finish line, you stepped right on a landmine. So ready to attack the day, frustrated because you can't find your keys, focused on the meetings you're going to miss and the traffic you're going to sit in to realize you've been holding your keys the whole time. Slow down. You've been hypnotized by the possibility. Son, I couldn't hear past the bombs. The first one didn't kill me and the second one ain't even happened yet. And it ended our family. He told me a love story of a woman born before him. He said, at the moment of conception, there was an eternal connection. And although I didn't know it then, I would fight for her affection. It's this war we've been waging since day one of creation. And only when you lose her, do you learn to appreciate her. Like even when I'm with her, I'm itching to get rid of her. And she only gives you one shot, blow it and she's gone. And I took advantage of her. That's why I'm telling you this, son. You can't rush her or slow her down. You better keep her on your side. She will slip through your fingers like sand. Her name is Time. And she told me a secret. She said, multitasking is a myth. You ain't doing anything good, just everything awful. And she begged me to stop stretching her thin and stuffing her full and stop being so concerned with the old her and the future her, but to love her now. Her presence is God's present, and you should be that present. 
So I guess you could say I've been through a divorce now. Me and my phone are no longer married. I'm ready to be here now. Okay. So how do we apply this? Well, I already mentioned this, but we'll talk more about this point next week. But let me tell you how I'm going to try to apply this principle today. In just a moment, I'll finish preaching. I'll say, I love you guys. I'll take my microphone off, say my goodbyes afterwards, and then I'll drive home. And on the way home, I will turn all the music off and I will just thank God for another Sunday of worshiping with my faith family. I'm so grateful that I get to do this with you. And then I will get home, Lord willing, I will take a nap, favorite Sunday afternoon activity. I'll wake up, if I have time, I'll go for a run and I will hate every step of that run. And then when I'm done, I will thank God for the ability and the health that he has given me to hate that run. Then I'll play with my girls. My daughter, Naya, has been working on this house in Minecraft. She's super excited about it, and she'll probably sit down and show me this house and walk me through every room, and I won't understand a thing she says, but I'll be excited for her. And then Katie and I will probably work on dinner together. I'll probably grill something outside, and then we'll go through the nightly routine, bath time, dance party in the kitchen as we clean up, bedtime stories and prayers, And then my wife and I will enjoy some quiet time alone after the girls are down. And then I will lay my head on the pillow and I will thank God for another day with my faith family and with my family. And I'll try to be present in the moment. I don't know what your Sunday afternoon looks like, but I pray that you would recognize that God has given it to you as a gift and that you would be present in the moment. So Grandpa Solomon, he's just dropped all these bombs of wisdom on us. But he's not done. He has so much more he wants to say. We just don't have time. We don't have time to cover it. So he reels in all the lines. He eats the last of the Vienna sausage. He finishes his old Milwaukee and he goes, let's go. Solomon, this one who has seen it all, who has experienced it all, he has climbed the tallest mountains. He looks down over it all at life under the sun and he allows us to glean wisdom from him. The question is, will we listen? Will we listen to him? When I was in college, there were these two guys named Shane and Shane who used to travel around our area and lead worship from time to time in our college town. And they had this song about Solomon. And the lyrics of the song are so perfect for what we've been talking about. So I want to wrap up with these words. They sang this. Sitting around the fireplace with a friend who's been through it all. Solomon, wisest one, tell me what you have found under the sun, under the sun. And he answered, Get over, get over, get over the sun where life is hidden. Then he put on a somber face, talked about how the rich man will waste away in the ground where the poor man is found, painted up like a clown. Under the sun, under the sun, he answers, son, you'll soon be done. A life spent on some shiny God who leaves you empty. Get over, get over, get over the sun where life is hidden. Son, you'll soon be done. So Solomon says, get over the sun where wisdom is found and where life is hidden. Now, I told you at the beginning that we would work our way through the passage and then we would talk about Jesus. And this should come as no surprise to you if you've been around our church for a while. But I think this is the most important part of the sermon. So if you have tuned out for the last 30 minutes, I would ask you to listen in. For those of you at home, listen in. If you missed this part of the sermon, you missed the entire point. In chapter 7, verse 20, Solomon speaks these words. 
We'll put them on the screen. He says this, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Solomon, from his perspective, as he looks out at all of life under the sun, he proclaims, there is not a single righteous man. There is not a single man who does good all of the time. There is not a single man who has never sinned. And for Solomon, it was absolutely true because Solomon lived before Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we live on this side of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, this Jesus who came from beyond the sun to show us what a perfectly lived life looks like, to show us what a righteous life looks like, to show us what a life of a man who only does good and never sins looks like. And he willingly went to the cross and he conquered death to rescue you and to rescue me from the vanity, from the meaninglessness of life. In today's passage, Solomon is trying to impart wisdom to us, but you must know this about wisdom. You must understand this to really understand what Solomon is getting at. Wisdom is not a theory. Wisdom is not an idea. Wisdom is not a concept. Wisdom is a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verse 3 tells us that in Jesus, all heavenly wisdom and knowledge is hidden. Brothers and sisters, we are sinful fools who will never be truly wise apart from Christ, which is why we take communion every week as a faith family. We come to the tables of communion every week to remind us of the body broken, the blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins because he loves us, to remind ourselves of the wisdom hidden in Christ Jesus. So in just a bit, we'll sing a couple songs. We would invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to the tables to take communion and to remember this Jesus that we gather together to celebrate each and every week. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word, for another chance to study your scriptures. God, I'm so thankful that all these years later, your wisdom stands true. God, thousands of years ago, Solomon is sharing this wisdom, and here we are, still learning, still gleaning, still failing to apply it to our own life. God, I pray that you would help us be a people full of wisdom. God, your scriptures tell us that if any of us lacks wisdom, that we should ask for it. And so, God, I come before you on behalf of every man, woman, and child gathered here, and I plead with you, give us your wisdom. God, we love you. We're so grateful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.